Okay, if you have a um, Bible handy, um, open uh, somewhere near the middle. Uh, at Psalm uh, 146. Okay, so we're doing this uh, mini-series on um, worship uh, from the Psalms. Uh, we're asking that question, uh, what is at the heart of worship? You know, what is it that will reorder our hearts so that we will want to worship God more than any other thing? And uh, we've seen uh, from the Psalms, uh, well, from Psalm 99, the number one thing we need is to encounter God in His holiness. Okay, because when you encounter God as holy, that creates awe and reverence for God, which is really the heart of what worship is. Then we looked at Psalm 100, where we, need, we see we need to encounter God as good, because when you know the goodness of God, that creates gratitude, and we worship God out of the thanksgiving uh, of uh, providing His Son in the, in the Gospel. And today we're going to finish this series by seeing that we need to encounter God as dependable. Okay, that He is all we need for everything. Uh, and that, of course, produces um, trust, which is also an aspect of um, worship of God. So let's read uh, Psalm 146. Let's hear the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we need your Holy Spirit because we know, Lord, that our minds are darkened without him. We need him to shine uh, the light of your word in our hearts so that we can see and understand uh, all that you're saying to us. We pray, Father, that you would also uh, give us the uh, heart that is open to hearing your word and wherever our lives are, are off uh, in the wrong direction, Lord, we pray that you would call us back through your word, that we might walk in your ways, that we might enjoy uh, living uh, in relationship with you and living according to your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do you look to for help and hope? Where do you look to for help and hope? Uh, for example, you get some really bad news about your health. 
Where do you look to for help and hope? Or imagine you're in financial trouble, real financial trouble. Where do you turn for help and hope? Or perhaps you are deeply um, distressed about the state of our society, the changing culture, what, what that might mean for your future, you know, the implications for your job, uh, implications for your children, the kind of society they will grow up in and live in. All these worries, where do you turn for help and hope? See, these kinds of questions are helpful to think about because they actually uncover whether we live our lives with a vertical dimension to them or just a horizontal one. Have you ever heard that distinction, the vertical, the horizontal? The vertical refers to God, you know, living with God in view, and the horizontal is really just everything else. But which direction is our true help and hope in? The vertical or the horizontal? And see, that's the big question that this psalm deals with. This psalm asks the question, where do you turn, where do you look to for help and hope? And it does it within the context of worship. This is a psalm of worship that begins and ends with worship. And it shows us that our ability to worship the Lord is tied directly to where we look to for help and hope. See, Psalm 146, this, this is the first of, a, of one of the psalms that belongs to this collection of psalms, which are commonly called the Hallel Psalms uh, or the Hallelujah Psalms. And that's because Psalms 146 through to 150 are five psalms that begin and end, each of them begin and end with this statement, praise the Lord, or this call, praise the Lord. And it's the Hebrew word, Hallelujah which is why they're called the Hallel Psalms. And Psalm 146, it's calling us to praise God and it's telling us what it means to praise God, but it also tells us what gets in the way of praising God. And then finally, it tells us how we can regain our desire to praise the Lord. And so that's our three points today, what it means to praise God, what gets in the way, and then what will rekindle that desire. So let's, let's look at this psalm under those three headings. First of all, what does it mean to praise God? Now, we talk about praising the Lord all the time, don't we? But what does that actually mean? Well, the first two verses tell us. Look at verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Now, these opening words... Praise the Lord. Like I said, that's the translation of that Hebrew word, hallelujah, which is really two words kind of like stuck together because hallelujah, that means um, praise. Now, it's, it's saying you, everyone, praise. Uh, yah is the shortened version of um, God's covenant name, uh, sometimes called Yahweh. Uh, we think that's how it was pronounced. But hallelujah, it does mean, hey, everyone, Praise the Lord. And do you know that word hallelujah, or even the translation, praise the Lord, it's actually often misunderstood or often misused because how, how do we normally use, well, maybe not so much in a Presbyterian setting, but generally speaking, 
How do people use the word hallelujah or praise the Lord? Normally, it's kind of like a religious version of woohoo, praise the Lord, hallelujah. We don't do that here. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's a good thing. But... But the way, the way it's written in this psalm, it's not, it's not like a kind of exclamation. It's not something that you shout out when you get excited. Praise the Lord is actually a command. Okay? It's, it's a command calling on the congregation to engage in praise. Okay? It's calling on the congregation to recognize what is so praiseworthy about God so that we will want to praise him. And the psalm, um, the speaker who is, you know, in the psalm, who is calling to the congregation, praise the Lord, he's also telling himself to do that. See, the command is not only to everyone else, but also to the one leading. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And so here we see pray, to praise the Lord. What, what does it mean to praise the Lord? Well, it has, has a couple of dimensions to it. See, one of them is actually telling God how great he is. Praise the Lord. That means to tell God how wonderful he is. But when we see the way the psalm is calling the congregation, we see that praising the Lord is actually telling one another how great God is. It's saying, look at this, look at how praiseworthy our God is. And so there's those two dimensions to it. That's why in a uh, church gathering like the one we're in right now, it does have these two aspects to it. Why are we here? We're here to tell God how great he is. You know, God is really the focus of this service. We're here to say how wonderful God is, how thankful we are to him. We're here to praise him. And at the same time, we're here to focus on each other. We're here to tell each other how great God is, how wonderful he is, how he is worthy of our praise. And uh, that's why, you know, the focus of a church service, it's first and foremost on God, but it's also on each other. And, you know, each element of worship, each aspect of a a church service, it has that focus to them. Now, one good example is singing. Uh, You see this in the way that singing is described in uh, the Bible. So in Ephesians uh, 5 verse 19, it says that in our singing, we should be, notice, addressing one another. Uh, with in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody where to the Lord in your heart uh, and edify one another. There you go. So I don't know if that was the correct. Anyway, I might have made a mistake there when I gave that to Ethan. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you can see here where's singing directed. It's directed to God, obviously. But it's also directed to each other. We are actually singing to each other. And you can even see that in the songs that we um, have sung today. You know, we sang, um, uh, what was it? You deserve the greater glory. Okay? You are a good and gracious king. See how we're singing to God. We're telling him how wonderful he is. But then we also sang another song that said, come let us adore him. Who's that song sung to? To each other. Okay, have you ever thought about that? You're actually singing to each other, which is why you know, we've all got to raise our voice. We can't just quietly sing to God in our hearts. We've got to sing to each other. 
That's why there needs to be volume. We need to be able to hear each other. Uh, that's why the musical instruments can't be drowning out everything that goes on here. We need to hear the voices because that's what singing is for. We're singing to God. We're singing to each other. And that's what, that's what it is to praise God. It's to tell him how great he is. It's to tell others how great he is. We also see, though, the, the scope of um, praise uh, in verse 2 because here we see the speaker of the psalm making this resolution, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing to God, to God, to my God, while I have my being. And there you can see that the writer of the psalm, he sees the praise of God as being central to life itself. You know, while I have my being. It's another way of saying that this is why I exist, to praise the Lord. And so praising God, it's not something that can be confined to one compartment of our lives. It's, it's not like um, brushing your teeth. You know, you brush your teeth once or twice a day, but not all the time. We're constantly doing it. Uh, praising the Lord, it's not like taking the bin out. Now, you've got to do that once a week, but not all the time. But see, sometimes we can think about that with praising the Lord, that it, it's all confined to here, that this is where it happens. Whereas out there, we're just living our life, going about our business. I know, praising God is actually central to life. It's central to our very being. In fact, if we don't praise the Lord as long as we live, while I have my being, if we don't do that, do you know what happens? We don't stop worshipping. We don't stop praising. We just worship and praise other things. Because one of the aspects of being created in God's image is that we are worshippers. We find joy in worshipping. We, we, we praise what is praiseworthy. And so, you know, whenever we find something that's uh, awe-inspiring, whenever we find something that is uh, captivating and beautiful, what we want to do is we want to declare how wonderful it is. We want to tell other people how great it is. We actually can't fully enjoy things unless we can tell other people how great they are. See, that's praise. It's part of what it means to be human. But as we'll see in this psalm, if all we ever do in life is praise things on the horizontal level, then we're actually missing out on all that God has created us for. And nothing on the horizontal level can actually satisfy the praise that we were created to give. Only the vertical, only praising God can satisfy that. And so there's a sense in which if all we ever do in life is praise created things. Now, if all we ever do is go around saying um, how great our footy team is or, or how great some politician is or some cause, if that's all we ever praise, then there's a sense in which life will have an emptiness to it and a futility because we've, we're created for something so much bigger, to be able to praise the God who made us. That's why we exist. And so that's the first thing. We're called, everyone is called to praise the Lord because that's the heart of why we exist. And praising God means telling him how great he is and telling others how great the Lord is. Now, second, though, we see in this psalm, in verses 3 and 4, We 
we see what gets in the way of praise. What gets in the way of praise? In other words, why do we find praising God such a struggle? Why is it easier to praise um, your footy team, you know, to tell other people how great your footy team is than to tell other people how great God is? You know, even like in it or after a church service, we can, you know, the service is over, we've sung all these praises to God and then we go straight back to talking about how Collingwood beat... Um, doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, why is it that we, it's easier to get more excited about so many other things in life than it is about the Lord? And verses 3 and 4 actually show us why. One of the reasons why. And it has to do with where the focus of our lives um, really lies. So verse 3, notice how it begins with, Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in princes. So a prince, that refers to anyone with power, anyone with influence, anyone who has the ability or the resources to get things done, you know, to make your life better. And uh, when when the book of Psalms was compiled, so that it has these five um, praise psalms at the end, that was actually after the uh, Israelite nation had been in exile in Babylon. And so they had spent uh, 70 years uh, feeling like slaves, separated from their homeland. And, and then what happened? God brought them back. But how did that happen? God raised up King Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia. And King Cyrus, he had defeated Babylon, who captured them. And he was the one who sent them back. And so the people of Israel, at that point, they were tempted to think, that that's how you get things done. Okay? You've got to have someone powerful on your side. You've got to have someone like the king, king, the king of Persia. And so they were tempted to think that putting your trust in powerful people, that, that that's where salvation is found. That if we can just get the right people with the, with the power on our side, then life will go the way we want. Then we will have peace and then we'll have uh, prosperity and all the good things that we're looking for. And so for the Israelites... That vertical dimension of life was in danger of just being replaced by the horizontal, just putting trust in princes. But it's actually the same for us. Put not your trust in princes is actually saying to us, don't put your trust in those with power, in those with resources, in those that you think you can benefit from, people that you think are going to make your life better. And that's easier said than done because we actually live in a culture that does believe that if anything's going to get done, if anything good can happen, if any changes can be made for the better of our lives and for the world, where's that going to come from? It's going to come from people. It's going to come from those with power, those with resources, those with influence and authority. And so the hopes of humanity really, you know, for lasting peace, for security, where, where do the hopes of humanity lie? In those with power. So for when it comes to peace, where do we look? Armies, governments, uh, those who can get together and form strength and, and fix things. You know, our hopes for defeating diseases and suffering, environmental disasters, where are they placed? 
in scientists, in doctors, in innovators. These days, uh, many people look to billionaires to, to fix what seems like the biggest problems. How are we going to fix uh, overpopulation of the Earth? Well, we just need some guys to get together and form some colonies on Mars. And so we can easily fall into thinking that if we can just get the right people, the right technology, the right governments, the right companies, the right investors, get all of these to work together, then we can finally end all of oppression, we can end disease, disaster, finally make our world into kind of a, a heaven on Earth with a few outposts on Mars and, and the Moon. But the psalm says... Put not your trust in princes. Now, that's not just a cultural danger. Uh, there's actually a Christian version of that as well, uh, this Christian version of misplaced trust, and that is that sometimes we can fall into thinking that if we can just get the right people into, into politics and government, if we can just get Christians into the high places in society, into the places of power, you know, perhaps take over the media, if we can do all of that, then we can advance the Christian cause. You know, or, or in, in churches, how can we make churches successful? If we can just get the right pastor, if we can just get the big flashy guy, you know, the celebrity pastor, the one who writes books that everyone wants to, to be at and hear. Or if we can just get, you know, a, a real music band, you know, one that can produce incredible music and have everyone just flocking to hear this wonderful music then our churches would be successful. But the psalm says, put not your trust in princes. Or even on a personal level. Now we look to people in our lives to fulfill our deepest longings. You know, we think if we could just be married to the right person, then all of our problems would just disappear. Or if we could just find the right doctor, the right psychologist, the right physio, then all of, it, all of our troubles will go away. Or if you've got children, you, you think if only they could have the right friends, if only they could get into the, the right, will have the right influences, the right teachers, get into the right schools, then they will be just right. They'll grow up just fine. But the psalm says... Put not your trust in princes. Now, the psalm is not saying that all of these examples of, of princes are wrong or unhelpful or to be avoided. It's, it's saying the key word there is trust. Put not your trust in them. Don't make them your ultimate hope. Don't look them to be, to be your, your saviour. And the reason it says that is because uh, if you look in the next uh, part of the verse, the reason we shouldn't trust in princes is because verse 3 says they are just a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And what does salvation mean? Salvation means no lasting peace. Well, these princes can't bring lasting peace. They can't bring lasting security. They can't bring deliverance from suffering and evil, and death. There's no salvation in them. Uh, verse 4 goes on to explain why. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. 
And that's just a poetic way of saying that every human being, no matter how powerful they are, is ultimately frail, is ultimately transient. Every human being eventually dies. And all of the help, all of the plans, all of the, the resources are all gone. In fact, notice how they're called a son of man in verse 3. And that son of man is literally a son of Adam, a descendant from Adam, every human being, a descendant from Adam. And therefore, every human being is subject to the fall that Adam brought into the world. Every human being plagued by human limitations, plagued by moral weaknesses. And so every human being, no matter how great or helpful they might be, Every human being is plagued by moral, uh, sorry, human limitations. So everyone gets sick, everyone gets old, everyone makes mistakes, forget things. You know, people can't be in more than one place at one time. People get overworked and run down. And ultimately, everyone returns to the dust. Like Genesis said, from dust you are, to dust you will return. So people not only have human limitations, but people have moral flaws. Okay, people don't always keep their promises. People make commitments subject to a better offer. People don't always care. Those who have the ability to help can't always be bothered. So you put not your trust in princes. Why? Because ultimately they will fail you. Don't put your ultimate hope in any person, no matter how resourceful they might might be, no matter how helpful they might appear to be. Don't make them your ultimate hope. Don't make them your saviour because they're either going to show their limitations, their frailty or their moral flaws. And so if you put your hope in them, what happens? Ultimately, you'll be disappointed. Ultimately, you'll be let down. Now, again, just to clarify, this this is not saying that people are no help at all. I mean, generally speaking, God works through human agents. You know, if if you've been helped in your life, you can point to a person and saying that's the person God used to help. And so we should be thankful for the people that God uses in our lives to bring help. You know, we should be thankful for the doctors. We should be thankful for uh, innovators and uh, even politicians and um, pastors and, and parents and spouses, all these people that God uses to help us, all these people that God uses to relieve suffering and to uh, improve the quality of our lives. We should be very thankful both to them and to God who raises them up for us. But you can't make any of them your ultimate hope because there's no salvation in them. That is, they can't bring lasting peace. They can't bring lasting security. None of them can ultimately free you from sickness and suffering and evil and death. All those things that Adam uh, brought on humanity. Now, the big question here is, What does all this have to do with praising the Lord? Isn't this a psalm about praising God? So what does all this have to do with that? Well, this shows us 
Why is it that we struggle to praise the Lord? Why is it that we get so excited about other things and, and not so much excited about worshiping God? And this psalm is showing us that if that's the case, well, here's the reason. We're just looking at life from a horizontal perspective. We've forgotten about the God. Who is actually the, the real source of help and hope? See, we, we get so impressed by human strength and human innovation and human authority and achievements that, that God can seem so small and so irrelevant. You know, we're too impressed by the latest technology and the next big thing and that we get caught up thinking that that's where our help and hope is. And so we can think of God as being really just too distant, not really part of our lives. But here this psalm's reminding us that salvation is not found looking horizontally. It's only found vertically. Don't put your trust in princes because they're just the son of man in whom there is no salvation. So the alternative to trusting in princes is, of course, trusting in the Lord. And that's, what's, that's what verses 5 to 10 are all about. And this is where we see how we can rekindle that, that, that desire to praise God. Okay, what is it that will make us stop trusting in the princes and trusting in the Lord? And it's actually, look at what this God is like. Look at his character. Look at his abilities. Then we'll see that he really is our only help and hope. So look at verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now there's that word blessed. I think that's the last time it's mentioned in the Psalms but it's actually the very first word in the Psalms. Blessed is the man. And uh, that word blessed, it means uh, someone who is, uh, well, someone who has every longing fulfilled, someone who is truly satisfied, someone who is truly happy. Where does that come from? Only comes from the Lord. When your help and hope are in the Lord. And verses 6 to 9 give us 11 statements on why the Lord is your only help and hope. Eleven statements. Let's look at them quickly. So first, God is the, uh, he's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. That's just the Bible's way of reminding us of who really is powerful, who really has the ability to help. Uh, it's the one who actually made all things. Uh, he's the one who can fix what is broken? Okay, how, how are we going to make this world a better place? Well, there's only one who can do it, the one who made it in the first place. Uh, he's also the God, verse 6, who keeps faith forever. That means he always does what he says he will do. He's trustworthy. <clears throat> and again, that's something that no human being is like. It doesn't matter how honest and helpful someone is, they can't be, they can't keep the faith forever. They can't be absolutely dependable because eventually the person just gets old and forgetful and then they die. 
And so they can't make promises that last forever. They can't be there for you forever. Only God can. And his promises never fail. In fact, he, he will always help. Might not be the time frame that we would initially like, but, but because God is faithful, eventually we'll realise that every bit of help that he brought into our life was always at just the right time, in just the right way. Eventually we'll see that. And we know that because he is faithful. But then look at the kind of person God helps. Uh, from verse 7, it says he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. Uh, the Lord sets the prisoner free. <clears throat> verse 8, <clears throat> the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. That's people without a home. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Now, what's the common factor in all of those people that God helps? The common factor is they, they all have no power of their own. These are the people who are often overlooked and forgotten about. But see, the Lord doesn't ignore them. He doesn't forget them. Which shows us that this God that we have, he's not only all-powerful and faithful, but he's someone who cares. He actually looks at the one with no power and helps them. He doesn't ignore them. So he has both the ability and the concern, okay? the power and the compassion. Only God has that. And the fact that it mentions the Lord loves the righteous in, at the end of verse 8, that shows us that the help that he gives actually comes through the gospel. Because who are the righteous? It's not those who are self-righteous. It's those who are righteous by faith, those who look to the Lord for salvation. That's where his help comes, in the gospel of Jesus. <clears throat> now, they, all of these people, they're contrasted with um, the wicked at the end of verse 9, where it says, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And so who are the wicked? The wicked are those who reject the Lord. The wicked are those who, who receive all these good things from God, you know, their life, their food, their clothing, their help, all the good things that God gives, they receive all of them and yet don't recognise it. Assume that everything they have is because of their own hard work. They don't realise that God was the one who gave them their life, who put them in the place where they live, gave them all the abilities and, and all the opportunities. It all comes from God and yet they don't acknowledge that. They just go on living as if God didn't exist, as if they could get along fine without him. And verse 9 says, the way of the wicked. The, what is that way? It's, it's that way of living independently of God, assuming you don't need him. That way will come to ruin because the only help and hope is in the Lord. So where is this God then? Maybe that's the question you're asking. You know, you look at that list of all these problems and, you know, they're all the problems in the world. Well, where is this God? Why isn't he helping? Where do you find this God? When will he do this? Where is the God who feeds the hungry? Where is the God who sets the captives free, 
who opens the eyes of the blind. Where is he? Well, if you're looking for him, aren't you drawn to Jesus? See all these things in verses 7 to 8. It really is like a summary of the life of Jesus. And so in some ways, Psalm 146, it has a bit of a twist to it because verse 3 said, there's no salvation in a son of man. And that's talking about every human being subject to the fall. And yet, the reason the psalm says that is because it's always looking forward to the son of man. The son of man in whom there is salvation. Because Jesus, he's not only a son of Adam, but he's a son of God. God and man. That's where salvation is found. He is the help and hope we need. And see, all of these things in verses 7 to 9, Jesus did all of those things in his life. But why did he do them? He did them as signs. He did them as signs that the kingdom of God has come in him. And ultimately, that's what this psalm is about. It's about the kingdom of God, because if you look at verse 10, notice how it ends. The Lord will reign forever. Okay, this is the king the king who will come, who will restore sight to the blind, who will feed the hungry, who will raise the dead even, who will end suffering, who will destroy evil. Okay, this is the king that the psalm is looking for. Where do you find him? When will he come? Well, he finally comes in Jesus And so this psalm is saying, where will you find the kingdom of God? Okay, Where will you find the end of oppression and the end of suffering, evil and death? You won't find it in any human government. You won't find it in any human innovation or any human authority. You will only find it in Jesus. And when he returns, all of these things in verses 7 to 9, when Jesus comes again, that's when they will all be a reality. They will all come true. But right now, you can enter the reign of Christ by faith. Remember we read from um, Luke's gospel earlier? We had those those Jesus giving the blessing. It's kind of like the blessing of verse 5. But Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. See, one day it will all come true. And the proof, of course, is in the cross and resurrection where Jesus defeated sin and death, where he rose victorious. He's already entered into the reign of verse 10. And one day he will come again and all of these things will then come true. That's why he is the only help and hope. You won't find it anywhere else. And so we see in this psalm, that where we look for help and hope is tied directly to our ability to worship the Lord. Because if we're looking for all of these things in the world, in people, in those with power, then what's going to happen to worship? It's gone. We're just praising on the horizontal. But when we see that the Lord, the Lord Jesus that he is our help and hope, that there's no one besides him, 
who can bring salvation, if that's where we're looking, if that's where we're longing, if he is our hope and hope, then that's where worship springs up. That's where we come in, we praise God because we know that we've found the Saviour. We know that we will reign with him forever. That's what stirs up praise. See, we can be thankful for all the people God raises up in our lives to help us, but only one can bring salvation. That's Jesus himself. And so there you go, that's worship. What is the heart of worship? Heart of worship is seeing God as he really is, seeing him as holy, seeing him as good, seeing him as our only help and hope. And to the degree that you see that, to the degree that you depend on him by faith, that's what will give rise to worship. That's what will change your life. It'll make you like that guy in, Psalm, in verse 2. I'll praise the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praise to my God while I have my being. Praise the Lord. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you, Lord, because you are worthy of all the praise. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it. We thank you, Father, that you are a faithful God, that every word that you say, we can know that it's true and and depend on every promise. And we praise you, Lord, that you're not only powerful, but you're also compassionate. You are the God who notices uh, those who uh, go unnoticed, those who are oppressed, those who who are rejected, those who are bowed down. And Father, we thank you that we see all of this fulfilled in Jesus when he came restoring sight to the blind and feeding the hungry and even raising the dead. We thank you, Father, that he is where help and hope truly is. And we thank you that we can know him because of your grace. So, Father, we pray that you'd help each one of us, uh, help particularly those who are struggling at this time in life, those who are weighed down and burdened by so many troubles father but we pray that each one of us would take our eyes off the hope of the world and look to christ alone that we would know that in him that one day all of these things will come true and that we will reign with him forever we praise you for that we pray in jesus name amen